Amen. Thanks, Barry. Uh, as he said, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we are finishing a, a series today. We've been in a series in the month of June on mercy. You'll see in your insert that came with the worship folder, on one side is the scripture passage, and on the other side is the outline. <clears throat> and you'll notice the, the series at the very top, Going to the Least, A Call to Mercy. In July, we're going to look at mission. Uh, and it's going to be a different call, a call to a different, uh, different group of people, a call to the lost, um, so to speak. Sometimes they're the same, sometimes not. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we have been walking through uh, the scriptures for the last few weeks uh, and Drew has taken us from the Old Testament through the prophets into Jesus' teaching. And now, as we kind of finish, and I won't say put it all together, but see what the New Testament itself uh, leaves us with, uh, we're going to see that, indeed, this is a thread that has run throughout the entire Bible. And the thread is this, really, not threat, but thread. The inevitable sign of God's grace in someone's heart is a life of mercy and justice, particularly to the weakest and the least of society. And so what we're going to do this week, you'll notice there on the side that has the scripture passage, we're just going to look at the book of James, not the whole book of James, uh, but parts of the book of James. And what I want to try to do is use it as a lens to see or look at the New Testament teaching on this. James is often called a wisdom book of the New Testament. Primarily because of the proverbial nature of so much of what he says. And what he is doing throughout his book, and some of you may, may be more familiar with it than others, he is describing what life will look like if you believe the gospel. He's describing how spiritual wholeness affects a whole community of faith. And he is providing a picture to us of what the gospel will produce on the ground of the church's life, both individually and corporately. And his letter is arguably one of the most practical in all the Bible. So it's pretty helpful. Uh, it's also one of the most kind of in-your-face in all the Bible. So I'm going to do my best to let James speak for himself. Um, it is tempting, uh, and if you have ever talked to a pastor, somebody that preaches regularly, which, you know, I clearly don't, uh, it's tempting to want to take some of the browbeating, let's be honest, that James does, and take it up yourself and start browbeating people with James. Uh, I don't want to do that. Uh, so pray for me in that. Pray that I don't start yelling at you, but that, but that I am encouraging you to look at the Scriptures and see what it is that the Scriptures are telling us rather than read the Scriptures and then yell at you about the Scriptures. Um, what we're going to do, if you flip that sheet over, you'll see the outline there. And basically, I want to look at how James gives us kind of a summary statement of, of what we've been talking about the last few weeks, really. Uh, it's the reason why I picked 1 John 4 as part of the assurance of pardon. 1 John 4, 11 you notice it in your worship folder. If God so loved us, if that's true, then we also ought to love one another. And that's the flow. Drew mentioned it earlier. If the grace of God in Jesus Christ has come, and you've experienced the love of God in that, you then move out. That's the inevitable working out of that love of God for you. Then secondly, I want to look at... Uh, 
an illustration of how faith and love always go together, and a very famous passage from James chapter 2. And then lastly, how James helps us repent and humble ourselves and lead us to the gospel. Because clearly, when we get into this, uh, at least I did this week, you do a lot of repenting. Because you're, you're like, man, my life, here's the measure. My life does not measure up. What do I need to do? Uh, and so that's what we're going to look at. So first, um, we, we, uh, we have the first point here. Well, I guess I should read the passage. I'm so excited about this. I really am. I almost just left you and didn't even read the passages. So let me read them to you. You can follow along on the outline in your Bible or on the screen behind me. So here we go. James 1, 27, 2, 1 to 4, 8 to 17, and then James 4, 4 to 10. And I'm just going to barrel right on through them. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you commit adultery, but do, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Uh, That is the Word of God. Uh, And so, first, let's look at pure religion. Pure religion. What is unique about what James does in this one particular verse, uh, which has really been powerful for me, particularly in the last few years, 
as this church has gotten started, but also looking back on the previous maybe five years of my life where I tended to read James 1.27 and say, look, what we're supposed to do is care for orphans and widows, right? And I, I kind of just chopped the other half of the verse off or didn't pay, pay that much attention to it. But what Jesus does, or excuse me, what the Bible does, Jesus as well, is it weaves into a seamless cloth two things that we today would refer to as personal or private morality. For example, don't commit adultery, don't lust, don't lie. And they bring personal morality together with social justice. Care for the poor, feed the hungry, visit the prisoner, uh, get people clean water who have dirty water, get people affordable housing that are without a house. God calls Christians to evangelize others with what you might call gospel proclamation, but also to be deeply concerned for the poor, to demonstrate the gospel with acts of mercy and justice. But what's happened is in the West, we have taken these two sets of concerns and we've split them off to really make them rivals. Uh, For example, the conservative mindset stresses the importance and necessity of personal morality and desires calling people to conversion. So conservative type of people like the back half of James 1.27. They like that to keep oneself unstained from the world. I mean, they're not going to say, no, we shouldn't do the first half. But the overall flavor of their life is far more into personal private morality, right? Work hard, do the right thing. Uh, however, on the other side, uh, <laughs> believing, well, let me say it this way, the liberal movement stresses social justice and rejects any calls for people to convert. So on the one hand, you have conservatives who say believing the gospel is very important, being separate from the world, not being of the world, and that tends to be the priority. And the liberal movement is best encapsulated in one of my favorite musicians, uh, one of the choruses from He's Now Passed Away. But it goes like this, Heal the world, make it a better place, For you and for me and the entire human race. Michael Jackson. Yes. Yes, I said it. I really like Michael Jackson. And I was bummed when he died. But he lives on through iTunes and such. But what Jesus calls his disciples to do is two things. Right? Always two things. He always brings them together. And I would argue the New Testament always brings them together too. Gospel messaging, calling everyone to believe the gospel with your mouth, right? But also gospel neighboring, sacrificially meeting needs of people around you by becoming the gospel to them, whether they believe or not. That's the hard part. Not only has it been separated in our culture, but the church has tended to separate it too. So the question gets asked in Christian circles, should we do evangelism or social justice? And if someone asks me that question, I say yes. The problem is you have some denominations that are heavily involved in evangelism, but they do very little in the way of social justice or holistic community development or community ministry. For them, relief is a no-brainer. I mean, to relieve someone's immediate needs, that's no problem, right? But the hard part, the ongoing development of impoverished areas of building up uh, what is broken systematically is seen as a distraction from the work of evangelism. But on the other hand, there are groups of churches who seem to only care about doing social justice. 
They establish soup kitchens. They build houses. They have food pantries. They do legal aid, job training. But the word Jesus isn't ever mentioned. Sharing the gospel verbally is not done. What's most important is meeting the physical needs. But here's the thing. You can't separate word and deed. Meeting physical needs and addressing spiritual ones because we are created body and soul, right? We believe in the fall, body and soul fell. Not just your body fell, but your soul's still okay, or vice versa. And through the salvation Jesus brings, he redeems body and soul. And so we have to go after body and soul. The only way for Christians to proclaim the gospel is through both our words and our deeds of compassion. Serving the material needs of people around us as we call them to faith in Jesus. Loving deeds regardless of a person's race or their faith is a very attractive testimony to the truth of the gospel. And so it doesn't matter if the person is, you know, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, smells bad, looks different, whatever the case may be. Many times, even if they're opposed to believing, I know you're a Christian, I don't want anything to do with your Christianity or your gospel or your Jesus or whatever. The question is, are you still then willing to go meet their need, even when they react that way. And I would argue it's, it's very attractive and can become attractive over time as you embody that. Many times people won't believe the gospel until someone shows them the gospel. Uh, there's a church in Uganda in the area where uh, Rose and others are working, uh, and it's up on a mountainside, and it's largely Muslim area. Uh, not Muslim like you might think of in the Middle East, very kind of folk Islam. But this church has said, we want to go in to the community, we want to address the needs, we want to meet those needs, and we want to share the love of Christ with the people around us. So in one particular instance, they, uh, and I wish I had the pictures, but they met this older man who was living with uh, AIDS, and the whole community had kind of shunned him. And as they're walking through, praying for the community, they come upon this, what, Now, the Ugandans described his house as a nest. Now, it's bad when the Ugandans describe your home as a nest. And he would shrink back into the shadows. He didn't want to be seen every time they would pass by. And one day, he he kind of, you know, ventured out a little bit, and they stopped, and, well, what's your name? And and what's what's going on? And so he started telling them a little bit of his story. Well, pretty soon, they rally the troops. They get up on the mountain. They say to this man, we want to tear down this nest because you're a human being. You you shouldn't be living in that. We want to build you a new house. Uh, We want to help you out with uh, some of your bills and so forth and even maybe see about you getting a job. Well, long story short, the man now, who was a Muslim, changed his name, funny enough, to go with his new identity as he is now a Christian, has now gotten... Uh, is now dating a woman, that uh, local woman from the community, who uh, he just, I mean, he, he's, he's an older, older guy, and I think his, his wife had passed away. And uh, so he, now, he's, now he's dating this woman. He's a Christian. He's living in a proper house. Uh, he has a job. He has a little a side business, and this church has helped him facilitate that side business. But he did not become a Christian that first day that they said, you know what? Brother, you need to believe in Jesus. Or, well, where are you going when you die? Their approach was 
a little bit different. It was more along the lines of, what are the needs that you're facing? He was very honest with them. He said, why are you meeting these needs as they're building his new house? They said, because this is what Jesus did for us. You know, that process converted him. He saw the gospel being lived out. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says it this way, Christians who live or work in needy communities in order to do evangelism must inevitably become involved in helping their friends and neighbors with pressing economic and social needs. To fail to do so is simply a lack of love. It's also impractical. If you wish to share your faith with needy people and you do nothing about the painful conditions in which they live, you will fail to show them Christ's beauty. And so James here ties together the spiritual and the social. Notice that James links a pure heart untainted by worldliness with a commitment to help those without social and economic power. He weaves the two together. And as we've said for the last few weeks, being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, which replaces a heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and a desire to live a holy life will lead you to a life of justice. It will lead you to becoming the gospel to the least and the last. You cannot have one without the other. Gospel faith demands both things, believing and becoming. So believing Jesus died for me creates a willingness and a desire to die for you. Another way to summarize it, we've been saying being justified leads to being just. And it's not a once in a while type connection, as we'll see. James says this is the only way justification and justice connect. The only thing, the o- or excuse me, the only way that these two things can come together is for one to inevitably lead to the other. And so, uh, secondly, why do you think, why does James use this sin of partiality, discrimination to illustrate what he's trying to say. What happens when we forget we're saved by faith and called to love? This, this, becomes, this becomes the problem. For church people, it's easy to slip into the religious mindset, right? The good, whole, moral people are in, and the non-moral, wicked, outside people are out. Uh, One of the most graphic illustrations of this is showing partiality. So, look there at the second uh, paragraph of chapter 2. My brothers, he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, other translations that you might have in front of you say don't show favoritism. And what the translators are trying to do is they're trying to get at a Greek word that literally means receiving the face. Okay? So to receive the face means you make judgments about people based on external appearance. James is applying the principle to differences in dress that would reflect different socioeconomic levels. So when someone comes in, you receive their face. But that's all you receive. That's all you look at. That's all you see. So uh, he has the Old Testament clearly in mind. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The prophet would not have chosen the ruddy, red-headed, runt son to anoint, to be king, right? Do you remember that? He goes to Jesse, all the boys. Well, surely it's this one, Lord. No, no, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's the Lord's point. 
And so if we are God's people, James is saying, the expectation is we would imitate God in this behavior. They've forgotten. Whoever James is writing to here, the 12 tribes kind of scattered around, they've forgotten when presented with the temptation to receive the face they have failed. Now look at the example in verses 2 to 4. Into the assembly walk two people. So into our assembly, those doors there, well actually the side ones because we don't use the front ones, walk in two people. Now one is in fine clothing, literally bright or sparkling clothing, very pleasing to the eye, very distinguished in the community. They're wearing a ring uh, in, in the case of uh, this context here. The other is a poor man in shabby clothing. And the shabby clothing literally means filthy, smelly, repugnant. Okay? Now why is the sin of partiality so heinous? Why does James get so upset about it? Well, because it's turning social status and financial position into the measuring sticks by which you say, to some you're in, to others you're out. So as long as we continue to measure people along these lines, we're really revealing how little to none of the gospel that we understand or even believe. If you believe you're saved by your goodness and your merit and what you've done to get the gold ring and have the fine shining clothes, then you will continue to base your identity and your life's uh, meaning, really, in your performance and your status, and you'll continue to evaluate other people in terms of those things. If, however, on the other hand, you're a sinner, saved by grace, James says that must change. Dividing people based on appearance reveals a fundamental deficiency. It reveals a division on the inside. And if you read James from start to finish, it's just five chapters, read it this afternoon, you'll see a couple of times in there, he talks about being double-minded, right? Having, you say one thing, but your life looks like another, or being, being, uh, uh, being devoted to the world and yet de- trying to be devoted to God at the same time. He says it just doesn't work. You can't do it. A divided heart and a divided mind separates what I believe from how I treat people. And that doesn't flow from an experience of the gospel. In fact, it stands opposed to the love command. Now, I was told by a friend recently about a church that she knew of. uh, And there was a a member of that church who happened to be a policeman. And he befriended a prostitute in the area. Uh, And he kind of got to know this prostitute as he was patrolling. And he was on his his beat uh, on a weekly basis. And eventually kind of got around to... Christianity, and he said, hey, uh, why don't you come to church? You know, because she was wrestling, and, 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 you know, her life was a mess. Come, come on to church. And she walked in the door, and one of the ushers, one of the cedar people, looks at her and says, uh, excuse me, can I help you? Yeah, I'm, I'm here for church. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't come in like that. You need to leave. So she left. So, Partiality continues today uh, in churches, uh, in our midst. But James comes to the main point in 14 to 17, and that's where we find his famous words. Uh, These verses are some of the most important in all the Bible because you can't get away from them. They are rubber meets the road kind of stuff. James asks a question, not unlike Jesus' question in the Gospels, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? Only James' question is this. What does it profit if someone claims faith but doesn't love? 
Now, I'm substituting love for works because I think at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's faith that leads to action. Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, it's faith expressing itself in love. So the question is, uh, is that faith that justifies? Can that faith save him? Look at verse uh, 2, uh, 14, or chapter 2, verse 14. Excuse me. The illustration that James gives reflects a common biblical blessing. He says, what, what if someone comes and they're poorly clothed and they're lacking in daily food? That is, not that they're lacking in food that day, but they're consistently, the idea behind the Greek is a consistent lack of food. And they come and you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. God will provide. James says, those are only words. It is not the statement itself that he's condemning. That's a great statement. But what he's condemning is the use of religious language as a covering for failing to act. Oh, you go and be warmed and I'm sure God will provide for you. Be blessed. That's the idea. The fact is, though, words don't provide the concrete help this person is needing. It sounds religious and pious on the surface, but underneath it's hollow. There's nothing there. And through the illustration, James is saying that the word of an uncaring believer who fails to act to help a person in need, that word is as useless as the profession of faith as a person who says they have faith but no deeds. And in verse 17, which really is kind of a shocking verse, literally what it says is, faith in itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead. It isn't faith. Now, let me throw in a parenthesis here. I want you to know, he's not saying that works must be added to faith as a way to ensure our salvation. Martin Luther, the great reformer, got to reading the New Testament, and as he got into the New Testament, he came to the book of James, and he read this chapter, and he was like, oh my goodness, what are we thinking having this in the Bible? Let's throw it out. Literally, that's what he wanted to do. Because he saw it as, as, as a fundamental disagreement with the Apostle Paul, who says, uh, you see, someone is justified by faith alone and not by works. James says, verse 24 of chapter 2, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So what is he saying? Well, I think, I think he's saying it's not that faith and works are two different approaches to God. And James is arguing for works. Paul's saying, no, it's faith. James's argument is faith that doesn't produce love is in itself defective or useless. Because genuine biblical faith will always, will inevitably be characterized by works of love. So how do you know faith is genuine? James says it shows itself in works of love. And Paul said the same thing. So where are you? I mean, as you take a, take a measure of your life, where are you? How are you doing in evidencing your faith through love? Is faith words alone? Or are there, are there actions? It, it, is something accompanying what it is you say you believe? And if we're honest, as I mentioned at the outset, there's much to repent of. And that takes us to chapter 4 and the last point. Humility uh, and the greater grace. Now, I want you to know, these verses, 4 to 10 of chapter 4, constitute one of the strongest calls to repent in all the New Testament. 
they, they're reminiscent of Old Testament prophetic literature where the prophets were just literally wailing on the people. I mean, what are you thinking, you adulterous people? Uh, that's, what, that's what he says. And literally what he says is, you adulteresses. So the church at large, living like this, he sees it and he says, you, you're friends with the world. You can't be friends with the world and claim to follow God at the same time. Those two things don't go together. So what he does is he points us to the gospel, and he does it in two ways. First, he gives us a foundation for our repentance. Look at verse 6. He gives more grace. I just want you to see those four words. Because they're amazing. In spite of how easily prone we are to make friends with the world, live by the world's standards, judge by appearances to give ourselves to other gods, making ourselves spiritual prostitutes. In spite of all of that, He gives more grace. What amazing news. It is through an experience of the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we can repent of all of that. And the more grace He is describing is, of course, only available to those who say, I'm guilty. And we'll get to that at the very end with verse 10. Our only hope is not only repentance, but a genuine faith. As the old hymn goes, His grace is greater than all our sin. Right? It exceeds our guilt. Jesus lived a perfect life of love and selflessness and died a horrible death to pay for sin because you and I have lived horrible lives of selfishness. And we deserve to die because of our sin. But it His grace defeated sin. And you and I get forgiveness and life and the joy of faith. The gospel is my sin, my shameful record, get put on Jesus and His beautiful, glorious life of work and righteousness comes on to me. And as that truth really sinks down into the core of your heart, as it really sinks, as it begins to change you, then you're going to be empowered to take on the burden and the shame and the brokenness of others. You're going to be empowered to do what you have experienced. What Jesus has done for you, you will then begin to do for others, which will point them back to Him. But it's not only the foundation. He also tells us what a life of repentance looks like. And I think He does it in verses 7, 8, and 9. He says, an experience of grace will produce submission. Verse 7, I'm not the boss of my life, God is. So you must place yourself under God's authority. It will lead us to oppose the devil, verse 8, refusing to bow to his authority, submitting to God's instead, drawing near to God, verse 8, in worship, experiencing his closeness. But our repentance must not only be for our actions, he says, cleanse your hands, but the motives that preceded those actions. Purify your hearts. True repentance leads to change. It's not being sorry, but it is trying to take your sin seriously. So the Bible says, mourn over your sin. Weep over your sin. Verse 9, James says, be wretched and mourn. Turn your Uh, laughing, which the Scriptures tell us fools laugh at their folly. 
and just carry on with the same thing. James says, stop the laughter and start to take seriously the sin. Mourn and grieve. But let's not miss the last verse. And I want to finish with this. The result, the result of this kind of a life of repentance is humility. And that is where you meet Jesus. Faith in Jesus leads to following Jesus. And so the humble are those who submit to God, who accept the verdict of guilty, but by faith turn to Jesus in repentance. It's only the humble who will, go back up to verse 6, enjoy God's gift of more grace because they recognize, they admit, I need more grace. But because they've been humbled, they view the least and the weakest around them with God's eyes. And here's, here's, here it is. Here's the thing. This really struck me. When you've been humbled by the grace of God for you in Jesus Christ, when you've been humbled by the work of Jesus, you don't show partiality by exalting yourself. That's the way of the world. You humble yourself in order to love and serve others, which is the way of Jesus. You die so someone else can live. But the promise is you experience a resurrection on the other side of that. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. So I want to close this with prayer and and ask, uh, ask that God will make us a people who make faith in Jesus Christ the ground for our love of others. And that would lead to lives of mercy and justice that we would be going to the least here and wherever he calls us in the world uh, for his glory. So let's pray uh, to that end this morning. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for the love that you have for us in Jesus. Uh, Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a man mighty in word and in deed, uh, that you showed... Uh, You showed the love that the Father had for you uh, in your works of uh, mercy and justice to those around you. And we pray by your Spirit that you would make us, increasingly make us a people uh, who live like that. Increasingly make us a people who are humbled by your work. who, Who are daily who are daily pleading for more grace, more grace, more grace. And yet as we're humbled by your work, as we are repenting of the ways in which we have not lived up to uh, your calling on us, uh, that it would produce lives of humble obedience and lives where we are going out, we are extending our hands, we are a people of generosity, Uh, we are, as we talked about last week, selling our possessions, giving them to the poor, all of the various things that you call us to. Father, equip us by your Spirit because of what Jesus has done, and change us, we pray, that we might change our city and world. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, there's a place in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where a Christian who is on his way to the celestial city comes upon a hill called Difficulty, and he notices that it's very steep and a very uh, high, and uh, those who are traveling with him realize there are two alternative routes that appear to them to be easier ways to get to the destination they're seeking, and they choose to go along those roads, which in turn are called danger and destruction. 
but Christian realizes if he's going to get to his heavenly home, he has to ascend that hill. And, and Bunyan writes there that he watched as he set out to conquer the, the hill, that he was reduced from running to walking and from walking to clamoring on his hands and knees because of the steepness of the incline. And I've just been thinking about that metaphor for what it feels like sometimes to, to take seriously what God calls us to in the Scripture, uh, these calls to radical service and sacrifice. This song, uh, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken, is like that. I really almost dare not sing these words because they are, are call us to a vision of the Christian life that few of us, including myself, have really kind of wrestled with the implications of. And so it's a messy melody, and we're going to stumble through the song. Uh, But I think that would be right that we do that because uh, in many ways we are those who are stumbling towards faith and obedience, uh, even to the things that we listen to here. And so this is new to us as a church. We're going to sing it a couple times. Uh, I'll ask you to stand in a few minutes, and as you kind of catch it, if you dare uh, to sing the songs, you can. But you'll see the grasping for the faith uh, in the song to believe uh, that God is who he promises to be. And so in turn, we can take up our cross uh, and follow him. Uh, in faithfulness. As John said, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another and our brothers, our community, and our world. And so as you go, this benediction, this good word over you, this blessing over you is is meant to empower you, meant to equip you, uh, meant to encourage you as you go uh, to accomplish that uh, because it is so very difficult as we just sang. Um, But the promise of this benediction is he goes with us uh, and he empowers us by his spirit to live that way uh, for our city and our world. So receive it as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.